0: Knowing what body this character has really drops me. Actions, in. the thesaurus that has become like a bible to Creative me. Creative visualization that really set me free. I love actioning, very specific action. Growth. Welcome back. Welcome back to season two. My name is Ann Penner, and I'm an associate professor of theater. I'm I'm an associate professor of theater. No, that's not true. I, <laughs>
1: Welcome to our second season. This is our first episode in the second season of The Actor's Mind. My name is Ann Penner, and I am an associate professor of theater at the University of Denver.
0: And my name is Kateri McRae. I am an associate professor of psychology, also at the University of Denver, who is generously funding this second season. Yes, thank of you our podcast. you. Uh,
1: we also want to thank Jonathan Howard, who is our sound engineer. He's wonderful, and we couldn't uh, produce this without him. And we also want to thank all of our listeners on SoundCloud and iTunes. We've had a great enthusiastic response about season one. So please continue to spread the word and also sh- uh, share your thoughts about totally. the podcast.
0: It's been a joy.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so today, uh, today's episode is on auditioning and impression formation. This is its own episode and it also is Kissing Cousins with our second episode which will be on casting and personality traits. So they stand on their own but they should nicely overlap and go hand in hand and we are very fortunate to have casting director and teacher extraordinaire Sylvia Gregory as our guest on this episode. So without further ado I'm going to ask Kateri to organize today's episode for us. So
0: if you haven't um, figured it out yet, we like three-part organizational schemes. And in this particular case, it was really easy to come up with our three phases of auditioning because we were thinking about the things that actors do before, during, and after an audition that might have psychological correlates. So we're going to talk about preparation and then what actually goes on in the room, the room where it happens, if you will. And then what, All the sorts of things that go through people's minds after they step out of the room and wait and wait and wait to get the call or not get the call.
1: Yeah. So we want to start with with this idea of what is an actor in control of and not in control of? Um, And and once we define what we are in control of, what are the best practices an actor can do to be successful? We want to start with first what we're not uh, in control of. Um, In order to prepare for this podcast, I asked a bunch of professional actor friends some questions. And one was, what are you in control of, not in control of? And Leah Watson, who's a professional actor here in Denver, she talked about what she has no control over. And she goes, I have no control over anything but my own preparedness. You don't know who the reader will be. You don't know who will be in the room. You don't know if it'll be too hot in the space. You don't know if it'll be too cold. You don't know if they'll give you a chair or ask you to stand. You don't know uh, what they'll want in your slate or your introduction. You don't know if they're looking for someone whose hair matches someone they've already cast. You don't know if your smile reminds the casting director of the kid who bullied them in elementary school. You have no control over whether they hire you or not, and you have no control over whether they even watch you when you're in the room. There is so much you have absolutely no control of. And that's more a commercial audition, but it definitely overlaps with a stage audition. So I just wanted to start with that to clearly define what an actor can control and what they can't control. We'll talk in a second about what they can control so that you focus on the stuff you can control and you really don't worry about the aspects you can't control.
0: Yeah. And I think that control is actually a, a huge theme in psychology. Um, and especially in my line of work, uh, which is reappraisal, the things that we are able to appraise as under our control or not under our control ends up having huge ramifications for how we feel about those things. So even that first step of recognizing I am not in control of everything and there will be things I can't control is like, very important for setting a different kind of mindset going into an audition. So I think that's a great intuition of yours and actually of suggesting like we should start by, you know, making it clear what it is that people are in control of and what they're not.
1: Yeah. So um, I'm pulling a lot of information from this amazing book uh, by Joanna Merlin called Auditioning, an Actor-Friendly Guide. It came out in 2001. She's a ton of experience in New York, uh, first as as an actor, but also eventually as a casting director. I know some of my friends who studied Uh, At NYU, worked with her. Um, And this book is wonderful. I can't recommend it enough. But at the very beginning, she talks about stop self. The first chapter is stop self-sabotage. And this uh, is called Power. Actors think the auditors have all the power in the auditioning process, and they have none. After all, there is one part for which many actors must vie with one another. You don't decide who gets the part. The auditors do. You don't know what they're looking for. They do and won't tell you. You have to prove to them that you're talented and overcome their hostile skepticism and disbelief that you're right for the role. Until then, you're just another actor. Thank you. Next. You're gone and forgotten. Their victim. The actor's misperception of the auditioning process can be crippling. Apart from disabling yourself in all the ways suggested at the beginning of this chapter, you abdicate your own power. The more power you attribute to the auditors, the less you have. The truth is this is in italics the truth is, without the vision and talent of the actor, the auditors are powerless. They can't do their work. So now we're going to talk about what vision and talent you have and how you can show them that.
0: That's awesome. I'm going to try to work the phrase hostile skepticism into my daily life in the next week. I I love love
1: it. it. Um, So digging into the before the audition, the pre-audition, the preparation, and both Kateri and I have have a lot have a lot to say about this. Um, I can break my idea about this into um, the technical preparation you, you do to work on the script, maybe the memorization, um, the analysis you do, the 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 way that you find a way to marry yourself and hook into and personalize character, and also the psychological preparation. And that's sort of Kateri's strength. What do you want to start with? Psych- psychological or? Oh, definitely start
0: with the technical preparation. And if you don't mind, actually, I realized I do have one thing to add to this conversation, which is just when it comes to any learning that happens, um, one surprising factor from the psychological literature, or maybe not surprising if you really think about it, but definitely an oft ignored factor from the psychological literature is sleep we learn things, uh, we consolidate that learning when we sleep. We talked about this in the memory episode. And so many of the quotes that Anne collected talked about starting early and doing a little bit a day for a while, which is really good from a learning perspective, especially from a very technical, like making sure your lines are at an automated level, that you're not searching through your brain for the lines actively, but they're just coming to you. That sort of thing will be aided by sleep. So don't think if you have an audition at 4 p.m., you can like Finally, finish memorizing your monologue at like ten in the morning. Not that, that there, there are lots of other reasons to not do the prep the day of, um, but from a very like this is what your brain needs to commit this to memory and have it be relatively habitual. Sleep, 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 sleep.
1: yeah, so my best auditions happen when I start learning early, and often with a, with a callback, um, you have a week sometimes even two weeks, to get memorized uh, and to to make some strong character choices. So some of what my friends say, uh, my friend Barrett O'Brien, who lives in Ashland, Oregon, he says, I begin early, right away, even if it's only 15 minutes a day at first. This lets the subconscious know there is art in the making. Then, whether the audition is in a day or a month, I put in enough time that I can let go of the work come what he calls sharing time. I've stopped using the word auditioning. I find the word gives away my power, which I love, right? Because there's just this myth that you have no power in the audition. So he simply changed the name of the thing that he's doing. Leah Watson, who I already mentioned when she listed all the things she has no control over, uh, she said, when I started to understand that I'm a kinesthetic and visual learner, I had an epiphany that led to a massive overhaul of how I prepared myself for an audition. Instead of sitting in my apartment, endlessly repeating my lines back to myself with very little retention of the material, I began to walk my lines. And I do this too. So she moves as she learns her lines. I highlight all my lines and then color code the sections. Then I take my script and I walk around my neighborhood. Each syllable gets a step. That's intense. That's awesome. (laughs) I walk sentences until I'm able to say them without looking at the script. Sentences lead to paragraphs and paragraphs lead to full scripts. The process takes time. But once I'm done, not only do I have the words locked in, but the words in the script are integrated into my body. Uh, The one final uh, thing I uh, note about preparation, which I think is interesting, is Eric Fellenstein, who's an actor and a musician here in Denver, says um, he, he treats his relationship to the text in, in a three-step process, <laughs> another three-step process, which is you begin, the first step is um, you speak through it and you're utterly unfamiliar with it, but there's a, there's a natural quality to it and a spontaneity because it's as if you're hearing it for the first time because you are. And then the second more time-consuming process of of attaching your brain to it and really kind of effortfully connecting yourself to the text and also to the character. And then the third sort of glorious step that a lot of the people who wrote in uh, talked about is that feeling, and I want Kateri to talk about this, when you know it like you don't have to think about it, your body he called it, it's in your body and your bones you know it Mm -hmm. so well that when you get up at 3 in the morning to go to the bathroom you can do it, when you're working out you can do it, if you have nerves you can do it, if a casting director throws you a curveball you can do it, Uh, you can pick up in the middle of it, so it's gone into place that's not intellectual, mm-hmm. but I want Kateri to take over with oh, this. Oh,
0: yeah. So, I mean, anything that you practice enough times becomes sort of automated, right? Almost anything, I should say. So if any of you took like an intro to psych class, you might have gone through a classroom demonstration where you have to uh, where the instructor shows you some words on the screen um, and they are the names of colors and they're also printed in font colors. And so when these two things are congruent, like the word red is printed in a red font color, um, it's very easy to name the color of the font, right? When someone tells you it's your job to name the color of the font. However, this is, so this is not a good example for the podcast medium, <laughs> this color <laughs> reading uh, task. But when your task is to name the color of a font and then you see, for example, the word, red printed in a blue font. It's automatic for us to read the word red, right? We all read since from a very young age, most of us. And so um, it takes some effort. It takes some control to remind yourself, oh, my task at hand is actually to name the color of the font. And the first few times you do it, you have to inhibit yourself from doing that automatic thing, which is reading the word. You have to remind yourself what your task is. And you have to sort of force your lips to do the right thing, which is to name blue rather than read the word red. But with practice, people do get better at this, right? And and the only reason why we have to overcome this habit of reading is because that's something that we've habitualized, we've automated, right? Those are things that we do without thinking about it. There are tons of examples of this in everyday life. People who are driving home who have no memory of which lights were red or green and what they did on their way and whether they stopped at the store today or was that yesterday, that is because that route that you're driving has become automated, right? And those the the things that we do that are automated or habitualized are impervious to interruption, to disruption, right? And so we can keep doing them on autopilot even when curveballs get thrown our way. So that's the goal, right? Is that you are able to have a level of familiarity and automation with the text, at the very least the text, right? Hopefully you have this level of automation and habituation with the emotional connection and the substitutions and all of that other work that goes to preparing a scene, um, but so that you are not using the effortful part of your brain to say, "Oh, there was a line break here, and the first uh, word had something to do with royalty. Oh, it was about a queen. Okay, yes, queen." Like that just takes so much mental energy. And the second, something unexpected happens in the room, you're off, and you can't, and you're flubbing, and you don't, you know, you don't know yeah. what you're doing. And there now.
1: are so many unexpected things, which we've, which you know, Leah's quote. Uh, talked about. Just briefly about memorization. I, uh, I on Facebook, asked the question, what what line learner apps do people use? I have not used them yet. I memorize in other ways, which I'll speak to briefly. But just to briefly advertise some that people love, uh, these are apps on your phone that, that successfully help you learn lines. Line Learner is one. Rehearsal Pro is another. Script, Rehearser, and Rehearsal 2. How does one memorize? Uh, I tend to use all my senses. I think moving, like Leah talked about, is really useful. I tend to learn lines while I'm running or I'm on the elliptical machine. Um, uh, speaking them out loud rather mm-hmm. than just thinking them in your in your brain is good. Sometimes people write them out. Um, Interesting. All of that. Yeah. Uh, so let's uh, the other way to prepare, right, is psychological preparedness, mm-hmm. and I would love for Kateri to dig into this.
0: Yeah. So. Anne asked me um, to talk a little bit about the psychology sort of literature behind expectations. And, what we were sort of going into is this idea that um, most people have anticipation and expectation about what is going to happen in the room. And this is different depending on your level of familiarity with the room or the process, right? If you are walking into a theater that you've never worked in before, you have a lot fewer specific expectations. If you're auditioning for a summer company that you've actually been in the room four or five times, you actually have a little bit of an idea of this is how they've oriented the room, this is where I'll wait, this is who or the kind of person who will bring me in. This is where the table will be. This; is, These are the kinds of faces, you know, that people will make. And our brains are really good at forming expectations, right? It's a really adaptive thing to try to anticipate what's about to happen so that you can adequately prepare. So expectations are part of preparation, but it's important to not have overly specific expectations. So our brain is constantly forecasting, projecting what it thinks is going to happen. And it's also constantly comparing what actually happens with what does happen. And this particularly, this happens in a few different parts of the brain. The reward system tends to operate on expectations quite heavily. So the dopamine system in the brain operates on projected dopamine and then actual dopamine. And Um, The interesting thing about the reward system in particular is that it's sensitive not just to expectations, but to certainty of expectations, and that's a very subjective thing, right? So if you are fairly sure, you're like 99, 100% sure this is going to happen, your reward system produces an anticipated dopaminergic signal, and then if anything other than that happens, you get a disconnect, you get um, some daylight between what the system thought it was going to happen and what does happen, and that can be extremely distressing, right? It can cause a, 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 a disruption, actually, to whatever's going on. It causes a cognitive disruption in terms of things like lines that you've previously memorized, for example. So the um, to prevent that from happening, the key is recognizing, you know, along the lines of what Anne was listing earlier, that there are things that will be uncertain, right? The things you think you know are going to happen might not in terms of temperature, in terms of people, in terms of the weather outside. In terms
1: of how long it takes you to drive there or public transportation, in terms of how people treat you, in terms of how loud the waiting room is, in terms of Um, what someone says to you, in terms of uh, your friend who's the reader wanting to say hi and talk to you before you go into the audition space. Um, Yeah, your expectations of how people behave. Um, All of that is is different. One thing that kind of takes us from the before into the during the audition, I don't know if we're ready to move into that direction, is uh, Eric Fallenstein said of a local director and teacher, Ina Marlowe, uh, he said that she said, which was extremely useful, and I love this, that your audition actually starts when you leave the privacy of your home. And I could even backtrack and say it it starts either when you wake up or it starts whenever you turn your attention that day Mm -hmm. to the audition, the shower, the getting dressed, the Blow-drying your hair, the whatever. But let's just start with the idea that you're getting into (laughs) your car or the RTD, some public transportation to get there. How you treat that time, you're setting up what Joanna Merlin calls your auditioning space or this, what I think is a sort of protective, this bubble around you, which creates focus. And it allows you to stay focused and concentrated on the task at hand. So that if there's a ton of chit-chat in the waiting room and there's five people talking to you, maybe they're your friends, right? And you want to chit-chat with them. It's actually up to you how much you talk with them. If it helps you, if that's going to prepare you for the audition, go for it. If you think it's going to push you off your your game, um, just say, hey, it's so great to see you. Let's talk after. Um, So that when you're walking into that space, you are protecting yourself you're allowing yourself to do the task that you have gone in there to do by um, creating this self-possession and the self-confidence. One quote from Joanna Merlin, she talks about self-confidence. Self-confidence is your lifeline in this business. If you don't believe in your talent, no one else will. I don't mean to suggest that you should be supremely overconfident and arrogant, thinking you're the only person for the job, the best there is, and patting yourself on the back. I refer to self-confidence in the deeper sense, trusting your own instincts, training, and experience to bring a role to life. Mm. If you approach each audition as though you had the job and were working on the part, you will have a much more positive mindset going into the audition. Assume you have the ability to play the role. And then she quotes a casting director who says, for those five or 10 minutes, you do have the part. No one else is in the room doing that part. It is yours. Own it.
0: I love that. And that gets in to this sort of meat of what Uh, I wanted to talk about in the during, um, which is a little bit, to be honest, less actionable. I think um, it's a little bit more for curiosity's sake, um, the the sort of psychological analysis rather than the the, like use this information (laughs) directly. But a lot of what happens in the room are these really quick impressions that get formed, right? The moment you walk in the room, the people behind the table or or standing at a window or however it may be, don't want to narrow your expectations too much, they're gathering information about you, and they're drawing conclusions about the kind of person you are, the kind of actor you are, how you'll be to work with, how you'll bring life to the role. The way that we form these first impressions of people has actually been studied within social psychology for many, many decades, and there are a few different theoretical models of how this works. The one that I'm most familiar with is called the stereotype content model, and this indicates that the, all of the different information we gather about people can be easily represented along two Dim- different dim- dimensions and that these are largely independent, although not entirely, and that it boils down to a dimension of warmth and a dimension of competence. And historically, um, these two dimensions were referred to as um, social versus intellectual evaluations or evaluations of people's communicative ab- ability versus their agency, their power. And... Um, <coughs> Uh, you know, these are the two things that we pick up on people. If you remember, call back to season one. These are things that we sometimes can thin slice from people that we make very, very quick evaluations of, um, even before people begin speaking, uh, based on how they carry them- themselves, as well as some of their um, group membership, their visual group membership attributes like race and gender and height and, and and those sorts of things, which we'll also talk about more next time. So the the interesting thing about this relatively simple model is that it creates these four quadrants of combination of warmth and competence. So you can be high or low on both of these dimensions. And like I said, they're largely independent. Um, And in a job interview situation, which an an audition usually is, what you're shooting for usually is that people perceive you as both warm and... Competence, So high, high warmth and competence. And so from the social psych literature, people who are usually perceived as warm and competent are people who are members of in groups, people that, uh, that, that the people you're making the impression on have something in common with people who are part of a social majority, um, People who uh, are uh, admired, so that the social competence model actually has emotions that go along with the four quadrants. So the one that goes along with high high is admiration. So that's the goal, and there are some barriers to that. Um, people who are perceived as warm but incompetent, um, the emotion that that tends to elicit is pity. So a lot of times children or the um, elderly are in this group. So again, it's low agency type group, but people who are warm and well-meaning. Um, and actually warmth can be broken down into friendliness and morality. Is the two sort of components oh. of warmth. I've never broken down warmth. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, the individuals who are perceived as competent, but not warm, this is your typical typical sort of cold high achiever, right? So the wealthy are often thought of as um, competent, but not warm, or um, people with a high degree of technical skill <laughs> are <laughs> often thought of as uh, in, in this uh, low warmth, high competence, and the um, emotion that tends to be elicited by um, high-competence, low worth people is envy or jealousy. Oh. And then the low-low group um, is uh, groups that are usually quite strongly marginalized. So... Um, In the U.S., at least, um, individuals who are members of groups like welfare recipients or um, uh, homeless uh, individuals are often perceived as low-warmth, low-competence, and the emotion associated with that group most commonly is contempt or anger um, towards those groups. So. There's been a lot of work on how do you get into that high high space, and there are some things like there are. There's a literature on job interviews that, um, when you very subtly, in a way that they do not realize what you're doing, mimic the. Um, nonverbal signals that the the person you're doing an interview with, um, that that tends to lead to perceptions of warmth and competence. That's <laughs> super hard. That doesn't really apply to, in, in an audition situation because there's this inherent non-reciprocity right, right across the table. They're not going to be mimicking you as you do your monologue. No. Um, and uh, some are kind and will give at least warmth nonverbal cues before um, you get started, but some don't, right? Some people are like, go. Yeah. And <laughs>
1: the way I interpret this when, when, and I love, I love this because it's really just two things to think about mm-hmm. when you walk into the audition room. But to me, if I'm walking in, I'm first me before I start doing the, the sides or the monologues. Um, and that's where I try and be warm. I try and be sort of my warmest, friendliest, uh, most positive, most optimistic, relaxed self. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when I'm doing the work, that is where I'm trying to convey Competence, Right. By saying, hey, this is how I would do this job. But I, I went into an audition with a woman who was um, kind of low status. And I think the one of the scenes I was working on, she had been um, put into a mental institution. And mm-hmm. so I wore a kind of like dowdy dress mm-hmm. with some kind of I was very particular about what I wore, mm-hmm. but it w- it wasn't professional enough. It was too costumey. And I ran and, and I left and the casting director ran out and he said, they love you. They want to call you back, but can you wear something else tomorrow? And that was sort of an example where I thought, oh, I didn't put myself... If I had dressed more professionally, yeah. I would have symbolized, that would have symbolized, I'm taking myself seriously And I'm putting myself both in the warm, the high warmth and the high competence quadrant. And yeah,
0: I forgot to say, but um, status is associated with competence. Those are nearly synonymous um, that that people, that characters with high status are perceived as high competence. And then also same thing. It's something to think
1: about when you walk into the audition, the sort of what control you have uh, as an actor, the best practice, uh, best practices for an actor during the audition. is not just to think that the audition are the pieces that you will perform, whether it's a general audition, it's a couple of monologues or a monologue and a song, or maybe the sides that you've been or the scenes that you've been asked to work on. Um, and, and casting director Sylvia Gregory has helped me think through this, which is the second you walk into the room, right, you are auditioning. Or as mm-hmm. we said earlier, you're actually, you know, you can think of your auditioning as starting earlier in that day. So, the role that you play as you, as you walk into the room, the role you play as you introduce yourself or do your slate the role you play in that pre-beat before you start, right? So right. That we could see that as kind of the moment before, but I was thinking any piece that you're doing actually has two parts. It's the pre-beat, which is you transitioning yeah. into the reality of, of the character's circumstance. It's the piece itself, which you've put some work into. It's the transition between that piece into the next one or the next pre-beat. It's the pre-beat, and then it is that yeah. piece, and then they might give you you know, an opportunity to work, and then it's you exiting. And all of that is you both working at warmth and competence, right? And, sh- and showing your work. So it's not just the work itself. Yeah. It's you in the room and not being too swayed. And I have some quotes from some of my friends. It's, it's not to be too swayed by their energy. It is not their yeah. job on the other side of that table oh my God. to uh, smile constantly and be right. friendly and to love you up. It's their job to assess if you're a good fit right. for that.
0: Can I, um, this reminds me of my worst audition story ever. Can I tell it to you? Please. <laughs> so, um, in my worst audition ever, it was a part that I really wanted. It was one of those sort of, sort of like dream parts that I always saw myself in and thought I would be great for. Um, and I, um, I went in and my song was off and I had to like redo it cause the tempo was super, super off, which in hindsight was probably definitely me counting off the accompanist wrong. But then I transitioned to my monologue Um, and, uh, we were auditioning on the set of the production that was going on in the theater, right? And there was a white couch. And, um, so I said, is it all right if I sit on the couch while I do my monologue? And the director sort of shrugged and said, Sure. You know, I mean, we're using that for the current show. So as long as you don't pee on it or anything. And I thought I was being so quick and clever. And in without missing a beat, I said, who told you about my last audition? <laughs> she was stone faced. This was not a funny joke to her in the slightest. And then I was off. Right. I just like that. Of course. Was, yeah. I was. I gave a horrible monologue. I didn't get called back. I was, it was, I'm sorry. it was a good. Awesome. Can I tell my worst audition oh, story? Please,
1: please. So, there's this great company out of New York that's been around forever called The Acting Company. I had a great audition. I had a great general audition, went in, impressed the person in charge, came back to the callback, um, and thought I was prepared. It was one of those moments. And I was in my mid. Mid-20s, mm-hmm. and I simply had not put in the work mm-hmm. to unpack the character and get off book. Or or I, I want to say it's not necessary to always be fully memorized, but you, at the very least, are extremely familiar with the text. It was one of those weird things where I just think I hadn't quite learned all the tools to be – as prepared as I possibly could, or maybe I was cocky—I don't know. I went in and I just was doing this, this, uh, the this scene uh, from *As You Like It*, and there were a lot of people in there, and I just blew it. it and It was one of those, mo- and then I went out, and they were doing—they were—they were filming a documentary on the history of the acting company, and I had given permission to be interviewed. Oh, and good and god! So there I was sitting after one of the worst auditions ever, and they said, "Like, talk about your audition." And I just was saying, like. I just totally fucked it up. Like, oh, no. But, but that's an example of, I think, and, and maybe we'll get to this yeah. later in the episode, the idea of with experience and mm-hmm. with age, I think there's a better way to assess expectations and, and to, in a way, to be, mm, with experience comes preparation or knowing how to prepare.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good time actually. Unless you wanted to say anything else about being in the room. Uh one more my friend Barrett again says about what he's in control of
1: when he's in the room. I'm in control of presenting the type of work that I believe in. This I can control. I cannot control whether the people on the other side of the table are interested in exploring this work with me, which I think is beautiful that, that I'm in really control beautiful. of my work, but I I cannot anticipate if if the people hiring me actually mm-hmm. want to engage
0: And I think what I like about that is what it implies is that that doesn't even limit his ability to explore it, right? Like that audition could be one, you know, branch off in the road of exploring that work. Right. And that that the other people say no thank you to but that his journey continues and maybe there's yeah. a different audition maybe he produces his own show and plays that role someday right, right? like that, that's right. not the fi- last and final chance to do something and
1: needless to say there are many many examples of, of directors and casting directors liking your work and deciding you're not right for that role mm-hmm. but that work leads them either to cast you in a different role in the same production or the same season right. or to simply call you back for the next show because they want to work with you even if you, they decided you weren't right for that uh, just a couple more quotes from the book, and then let's move on. Yeah. Um, so this is, again, from auditioning, uh, and she, she is talking about – she's quoting people who have seen a ton of auditions. Melissa Smith, conservatory director at the American Conservatory Theater in San Francisco, says, choose audition pieces that you have a passion to speak, then bring yourself – to the audition and be present in the interview. I want to get a sense of the person in the work and the person I'll work with. Should you come to our school? And then these two women who used to work at NYU, um, uh, Janet Zares and uh, Zelda Fishhandler. Uh, s- Janet says the biggest mistakes were that the stakes. The biggest mistakes were that the stakes were too casual, mm. not costly enough, not important enough. They were slight needs, logical, true but uninvested. And Zelda says, come forward. So as a human being, as an actor, come forward, compel us to admit you, send your spirit out. And there are lots of quotes from people who have seen hundreds, thousands Mm. of auditions who just are dying for you as an actor to make bold choices that are true to the text, not to play general, but to get specific and to be, um, to take some, uh, I don't want to say take some risks, and
0: to be no, bold. but be bold. And I think that actually reminds me of a finding um, from um, from uh, personality psychology, actually, to just, you know, dip a little bit into that, um, which is was a study of actual um, authenticity um, and when, uh, you know, what types of personality traits are people displaying when they feel most authentic, right? So let's just take a well-known personality trait of introversion and extroversion. You might think that people who are more on the introverted side of the spectrum feel more authentic when they're able to be introverted or vice versa, that when they're acting introverted, they feel authentic. It actually turns out that everyone, even introverts, in situations where they are feeling authentic, they're feeling like they have permission to be their true selves, become more extroverted, Mm. right? They're able to send their spirit out
1: Mm. when
0: they are in a space where they feel like their true selves will be appreciated. Oh, I love that. So I think that there's some, some wisdom in that.
1: And And this takes time. again, this connection with being able to make specific uh, choices that seem true to character. In my most recent audition, I had I was working on two characters. and one I sort of have been wanting to play for for 20 years and felt like I knew her and then the other one uh, is usually played by uh, a man and I had this opportunity to work on it and so I'd never really seen myself in this role but it's a super exciting role and it just it took some time there were several days where I thought well I get who this person is but how do I play this Mm -hmm. person and then I finally spoke to enough people who knew this character well I think one of my colleagues when I said you know when you've seen people play this role what do you love about them and he's like they don't give a fuck like this, this is a character who does not care what other people think about them. And then to, I could attach myself to that fact, that one fact, and then that kind of just liberated me to find my own way in. One more thing before we move on uh, is, uh, is Joanna Merlin again in this book. Her list of actor qualities that she thinks directors look for at an audition. Mm. Concentration. Competence. Yeah. Feeling of truth, you project authenticity. Mm. Everything your character says and does is believable within the style of the play. Spontaneity, Mm. that the audition quote-unquote happens. You are in touch with your impulses and feelings. Specificity, I think too many of us, and I'm guilty of this, come in and do a kind of general. It's not necessarily inaccurate, it's just general. And they're playing a mood. You want to make actable, active choices. Energy. What you do should never be static, passive, or casual. Yeah. Is that warmth? Part of it, humor, <laughs> courage. You don't give a safe, neutral audition, and finally, skill. You have technique and taste needed to deliver all of the above. Cool. That's a cool list.
0: So, when Ann and I first sat down and we're talking about auditioning, we actually like started at this last point, right? Which is, what is the evolution, and especially as you know, to. Women who have uh, had several decades of experience under our belt and have gotten, trust us, like more humble and gorgeous with each year. But, um, (laughs) you know, like what if you could go back and give your younger self auditioning advice, right? It's none of these things that we're talking about necessarily. It's this much broader perspective. It's this and both Anne and I got this when we actually had an opportunity to sit at the other side of the table, right. And has directed a lot. I have not directed, but I have had um, the opportunity to volunteer and just hear the chit chat, right. About casting. And honestly, in my current role, I do a lot of job interviewing and it's the exact same type of perspective, right. For faculty positions, which is, it's not always about you. It's almost never about you. right? And that once you click, once that clicks, you're able to shift from measuring your success in the room with whether or not you got the part, which is so natural to measure it that, right? Measure it that way. Yes. To other things, right? So you no longer see it as this is a competition, this is an evaluation of my core worth and my core talent, and the better I do, the more likely it is I'll get the part and the better I am the more parts I will get. Th- that's not really how it works, right? And and as we're growing up, it's so easy to, you know, when you think about like elementary school, right, there's such a limited pool of people, you get evaluated on your work, and there's like the people who are good at it and the people who are bad at it. And there's like one dimension and it's pretty static and it's pretty attributed to one person. And so this leads towards what's called this fixed mindset, right? So this is the work of Carol Dweck. A lot of you who are educators might be familiar with these concepts. Or um, a parent or of parents. elementary school kids. This is very popular in a lot of schools right now, right? Is this idea that the, a fixed mindset is characterized by people thinking when it comes to some quality, she studied intelligence. We'll talk about maybe talents. Uh, I think that's most relevant in the audition situation. Um, You either have it or you don't, right? Some people got it. Some people don't. People who have fixed mindsets tend to also think that it's natural inborn, right? It's all nature and not nurture. Um, And what happens is when people have a fixed mindset about talent per se, they're not focused on cultivating talent. They're focused on displaying it. They're focused on being recognized for it. They're focused on the outcome, the gold stars, the ribbons, the getting the cast, and they're actually quite avoidant of any situations that aren't recognizing their talent or their ability. And so any audition situation in which you don't get the part is a failure that you don't wanna think about and sweep under the rug and have nothing to learn from. The opposite of a fixed mindset is a growth mindset. And in the intelligence domain, individuals who have growth mindsets, if you give them a test of their math ability, let's say, and then you say, hey, do you wanna see the questions you got wrong? People with growth mindsets are like, yes, please. They're hungry for feedback. They're hungry for things they can do differently. They're hungry for what it is they still need to learn. And so this growth mindset regarding auditions is that every audition is a blip on your sort of like life history and that there's something you learn. There's something that you think you did well and think you might not have done well. And also this recognition that it's not the ultimate outcome that that determines the success of, uh, of your work. And again, for me, at least, that just came from this like brutal realization that you could give a textbook perfect audition. You could be the great person for that part, but they could decide to cast the entire cohort of people in that show a decade older than you. And you don't fit into that. They made that decision three people before you walked in the room. Right. Um, And so it has nothing to do with what you offered them.
1: Agreed. I just want to read a couple quotes of yeah. people who wrote in in response. And it it starts with um, a couple examples of really black and white assessments of success and then moves into something that uh, is a beautiful example of the growth mindset. So one of my friends, a uh, professional actor in Denver and L.A., says, Uh, I said, you know, how do you know you're successful? Um, And he goes, uh, he says, if I get the job, it's the highest level of success. Well, sure. If I don't get the job, I might consider it a success because I feel good about it. Mm. I'm not sure what goes into that feeling. Yes. Knowing lines, feeling like I listened and responded, feeling like I was out of my head. If I show up on time and am kind and professional and am able to make adjustments and be present and have fun, then even if I don't get the job, I feel good about it. A second one is Julia Owen, who's an actor in Denver. I used to measure success very literally if I got the role or not. Pro tip, this is not a great idea. (laughs) Now I call it a success if I did my best to prepare and execute my audition. It is more of an A for effort system now, and that works better for me. And then finishing up with Leah Watson, who I've quoted two other times. uh, She says, I use Maya Angelou's definition of success. In parentheses, she's a genius. Success is liking yourself. It's liking what you do, and it's liking how you do it. And then she asks herself, "Did I put in the time to be memorized to have the words in my body? Did I treat myself with respect?" Which I think is profound. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, which my, is just a joke, not <laughs> <very> good. <laughs> I was throwing myself <laughs> under the bus there. But, but that's I mean, what we I could, did. We
1: could spend an hour talking about, did I treat myself with respect in an audition mm. situation? Yeah. Um, did I hold space for myself to do the work that I prepared? So again, that's that idea of that auditioning space, which also is auditioning time space. Like when did mm-hmm. I start in the day thinking about working on this audition? Did I treat the other people that I met at the audition with respect? Did I capitalize on this opportunity to practice memorizing and playing? What did I learn? What could I adjust next time to feel more present in the process? This is all a process and practice. Yeah. And then she finally says, the biggest changes for me came when I stopped looking for the response I was getting from others. Mm -hmm. Totally guilty of doing that. And started focusing more on how it felt to be inside my process and work, which obviously inevitably leads to better work. Mm -hmm. I had a one quick example. I felt really great about an audition for the play Proof uh, back when I was living in New York. And I really wanted the role. I really wanted to work on this play. I wanted to work at this theater in DC. I wanted to work with this particular director. The actual I did in terms of the pre audition, the actual the execution auditioning, everything went well, I got some really good direction. And then as I left on the audition door was a post it that said Amy Redford is running late for her audition. And Amy (laughs) Redford is Robert Redford's daughter. And I thought, Oh, oh, I'm not getting this part. Now, that I could have, right? But I thought, oh, they're going to give it to someone with more name recognition. Mm-hmm. But that was an example that going back to what you're in control of and what you're not in control of. But, but you did- just
0: had to explain who she was. And all of our listeners know who Ann Penny is. <laughs> <laughs> so that feels really, good. Who, come, who came <laughs> out on top in the end several years later? Indeed. Yeah. So, and I, that, that that piece of measuring success with how much you learned is hallmark growth mindset right and there's another piece that brought up there, which is the internal versus external, right? So there's one measuring success by the outcome, which is whether you got cast, but still being dependent on external feedback. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I had one particularly, um, you know, invested audition in college that the director called me and left a message on my physical voice machine, my, I mean, voicemail machine that was, you know, in my dorm room that was explaining that he wasn't going to give me the role, but he thought I did a great job. You know, he just made a different choice for the character. Had not that he basically was like you couldn't have done anything differently. I would love to work with you again in the future. You know, don't take this as, you know, any sort of comment on the quality of your work. And I saved that message for like years. I saved it because sure. it was such a, a, a boost to my self-confidence. You know, the, the other thing that's a spin-off of the mindset, um, the, the basic mindset stuff that I was talking about actually has to do a little bit with nerves, which we haven't talked about yet, which is um, in in high-pressure evaluative situations, which, again, uh, some people uh, would appraise an audition situation to be evaluative, those who cannot, I think, uh, or those who do not, who appraise it as an opportunity or a, a showcase, what was the, uh, a sharing? You know, that's a a, sharing. That's a very non-evaluative frame for an audition, right, is to frame it as a sharing rather than um, a... Test and it's accurate. That's it what, is that you are sharing your work, yeah. but that leads to a, a slightly different spin on the uh, mindset literature, which is especially in evaluative situations or uh, stressful situations more broadly. Whether or not we um, appraise them as a challenge versus a threat. Mm. So when we appraise things as a challenge, our our Brains and our bodies respond very differently and are more likely to go into the sort of stereotypical fight or flight that can um, hamstring us, right, and and get us uh, nervous and out of our uh, habitual ways of doing things and into a hyper self-conscious, into a, a spot where we're letting the stress of the situation take over and we are guided by that. Um, versus a challenge mindset, which still sometimes involves a stress response and involves some of that bodily activation. But when you're appraising your body as rising to meet a challenge rather than being crushed, (laughs) you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rather than being crushed by a threat to you, um, it makes all the difference in the world in terms of how you're able to overcome those nerves. So this is the very stereotypical advice that's given for stage fright, right, which is um, don't tell yourself to be calm, (laughs) Mm. Tell yourself that being nervous means you care. right? And so that change of perspective on your nerves allows you to work through them and use them to your advantage rather than being um, overcome by them and and, and to succumb to them, if that sort of makes sense. That's tricky. I think that's an expert move, honestly, to view auditions as a challenge and not a threat because it is threatening. It is evaluative. At the end of the day, you are, you know... There there are some aspects of it that, that, um, like I I said before, that you're not in control of. I think a
1: similar way to look at it that I think I find helpful is uh, in in welcoming in both humility and vulnerability Mm. and nervousness into your auditioning space. And as I say auditioning space, I just keep thinking of this like soft, yummy, like warm, lit bubble around my body. But the
0: humility to do... Like mochi?
1: Like mochi! So when I think of humility, I think... Of uh, the humility leads me to do the work to prepare well for the audition. Uh, recognizing the vulnerability of the situation and putting myself and my body and my voice in front of this group of people. And that is nerve wracking and that nerves are good. I mean, there is amount of nerves and, and connect to the, I connect adrenaline to that, right? The adrenaline is, is, is helping you. Um, I remember, so then on the, on the back end of an audition, I always treat myself, I go get like some chocolate or a cookie or a coffee. Mm. Um, you know maybe you want to talk to a friend to get your out of your brain of the audition um, and then i heard someone say i think it was a local actor years ago i heard her say i i brood or think about the audition this is kind of a pro move it's hard to do this i think about it after as long as for the same amount of time as the actual audition took so if it was a oh, five minute ten minute audition i'm giving myself five or ten minutes yeah which is hard to do. It is hard. But I think that's a really beautiful way that's like to protect yourself, like that self-respect. Do I have respect? How much time am I going to give to processing? I did that in my most recent audition. I did that. And I needed some processing. I needed my coffee. I needed my chocolate. I needed to talk to my friend. And then as I was driving home, I was sort of processing, thinking, oh, did I mess up? No, I didn't mess up there. And then I I purposefully said after maybe about 20 minutes, I'm done. Yeah, Let's
0: move on. And this is, that's actually a well-known therapeutic technique Right. Especially for anxiety, it's called a worry timer. Right. So if people have a problem with excessive worry, one of the things you do is you don't say stop worrying cold turkey because that's like impossible. But, but what you say is, OK, you can worry about this for 10 minutes a day. We'll set a timer. When the timer goes off, you're done worrying about it. Like Love that's it. as much as you're going to work on it in, within your own head. Let's do you want to summarize? Yeah. <laughs> so this has been so fun to get back into the groove. I love it. Um yeah, I mean so just to remind you like this is the first side of the coin, right? We're talking about auditioning and then next time we're going to talk a little bit about casting and how that aligns with sort of stable personality traits that we perceive in other people and how aligning actors and characters can actually be a sort of amazing artistic choice that feeds into the whole rest of the success of a production and storytelling. I'm so excited for that. So we've focused mostly on the things that uh, we tried to focus on mostly on the things that we uh, can control because there's a lot a lot you don't control, in, including the mood of the people who are sitting there. You can't control their expectations or what they want. You can't control how much they're paying attention, how present they are. You certainly can't control the faces they make at you. It, we could just go on and <laughs> episode on. Episode three of season two is a laundry list of things you don't control about auditions. And
1: we broke the what you can control and therefore how to set yourself up for success in three parts, three chronological parts. The pre-audition before the audition. Now that's that might just be a day or it might be two weeks or a month, the actual audition itself, and then the post-audition time.
0: And if you think about it, there's like a feedback loop, right? Like I think the, the what we were talking about is the more experience you get with auditions, the more practice you have with this framing after the fact of knowing how you respond to not getting the part, the better you can go into your next audition with a less evaluative mindset, right? With a less like it's all about how good I am on a one singular scale. With le- you know, the more you can y- the more you have an experience with like, you know, a dog being in the audition room that you didn't think was going to be there, the more you have less specific expectations about exactly how a particular audition will go. Uh so Kateri, what did you learn today? Oh my gosh. Oh.
1: I learned that I love that Lee asked the question, did I respect myself in the audition process? Because mm. I think you can unpack that in a bunch of different ways. I take it to mean do the work, like take the time to do the work to give your best audition so that you can go in there and be proud of the work you're doing when you leave. And then I think the the kind of not to get too wooey wooey, but the, the love and the softness around, mm. um, you know, it, Mm, being aware that you cannot control every single circumstance and that's okay.
0: Totally. I learned the pre-beat is important.
1: That, yeah. You know what's weird about that? Is
0: that's a, usually a private moment, right? Like there's no other part of theater where other people see that. Like you're usually, mm-hmm. that's usually something you get for yourself to transition from actor to character. So that is like super... I personally, yeah. that's the, the part of the edition I feel most vulnerable is after I've slated and before I start my monologue because I feel like it's messy, right? Like there's a few microseconds in there where you're half and half and you're not fully transitioned and like that's not something you're supposed to show to people. And yeah. I hate it. Like I, if I could show turn it, around, Kateri, show I, it. that's why you do the face thing. You put your <laughs> hand over your face so they don't see that awkward. See the awkward
1: See the transition. All right. We're going to say goodbye. Next up is our, uh, I was going to say our audition with Sylvia Gregory. Next up is our interview. (laughs) We should be so lucky to have an audition with Sylvia Gregory next up. (laughs) Thank you all for listening.
0: Bye. We
1: are so excited to welcome to the pod Sylvia Gregory. Sylvia Gregory cast the SAG independent feature films, Fishing Naked and Teddy Boy, and the SAG independent short, Death in the West, parts one and two. She has cast numerous commercials, print ads, and projects for nationally established companies such as CenturyLink, Sprint, Adidas, Kellogg's, Coors, Southwest Airlines, Honda, Duracell as well as many regional commercials. She cast the Colorado Health Foundation Bilingual Episodic Films and Cruciata for PBS and Univision, which won the Heartland Regional Emmy Award. And she is proud to have been a part of the Colorado Office of Suicide Prevention's Man Therapy PSA campaign. Sylvia is currently the casting director for the Colorado Shakespeare Festival. She is also cast for Local Theater Company the Denver Center Theater Company, Denver Center Attractions, Boulder Ensemble Theater Company, and Colorado Springs Theater Works, as well as many others. She teaches acting and auditioning for on-camera and the stage all over Colorado. She holds degrees from California State University Fullerton, the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Arts, and she has an MFA from the Alabama Shakespeare Festival. Sylvia is a proud member of the Casting Society of America.
0: We are so lucky to have you. She casts all the things. She just <laughs> <to> said that. <laughs> this is Sylvia. That was she casts all the things. <laughs> uh, we're lucky to
1: have you. Your name came up in multiple episodes mm-hmm. during season one because I was working with you uh, to prepare for uh, an audition. So I ah. said, Well, Sylvia taught me. <laughs> so we feel very, very fortunate to thank have you. Thank you. Here. Thank you
2: for having me. It's really nice to be here. Yay.
1: So, uh, our first question for you During the casting process, what are your responsibilities as a casting director and how are they different? From the directors.
2: Ah, okay. Uh, I think you're going to hear my favorite phrase that anyone who studied with me is going to be able to mouth along, which is "it depends." <laughs> every question yeah. you ask me, basically, the answer is "it depends." So just you know be what? ready for
0: that. Social psychologists? favorite phrase is ever. It, yeah. It depends. Any question? How, why do people do this? It depends. Yeah,
2: yeah. This is this is so subjective, and every job is different. So I'll give just general great answers, but it really does depend on the project. Uh, so. Usually what happens is the casting director's job is to bring in as many appropriate options as possible for the directors, producers, artistic directors to choose from. So what I do a lot is I'm the first person who gets the specs, gets everything that the client says they're looking for, which is another thing, uh, and... um, I go through, you know, my files and I actually have a lot of Facebook friends and I go through all of Facebook because that's a big reference tool for me. Uh, I go through everything and my lists and bring in the people I think fit whatever the needs are of that particular project. And again, that varies based on the project. And then they come in and then usually I have some input into who moves forward, Uh, For theater, I would say I have more input than I do for on-camera. And then for the after callbacks or second round of callbacks or however many callbacks we're doing, uh, then I usually there's a final meeting. Uh, For theater, definitely have some input into final casting decisions and and how I think people fit together as a whole. Mm -hmm. For on-camera stuff, that's usually at that point the producers, the clients, They know their demographic, they know who they're trying to sell to, and they pick it up and run with it. For the film work I've done, it's been more like theater, that there's more input through the process. But for commercials, usually after callbacks, I'm just sitting back while they make their final decisions and then waiting for them to tell me who to book.
1: I'm guessing you appreciate that you have uh, some say during the, the theatrical decision-making in terms of who moves forward to callbacks or casting. And I, and you were saying you have less maybe for the the commercial work.
2: Yes. Does it make sense that you have less? It does. It does. And at first when I started this, I was like, what don't they know that that's the best actor? Why are they choosing that person? You know, that person did the same thing every time we read them 20 times. It was the same read every time, but a lot of times for on camera stuff, that's what they want is that one Mm -hmm. person who can deliver the same read the same way every time. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sometimes they'll want someone who's really versatile and can do a lot of different things. But also they know their demographic much better than I do. They know who they're selling to and who they're targeting and what, you know, socioeconomic structure they're trying to target their product to. You know, all of the stuff that that they've done research on that I don't know anything about. So now I'm – and there have been times where they've cast someone and I've been like, nope, nope. (laughs) <laughs> That's the wrong choice. But then I see the spot and I'm like, yeah, that was perfect. <laughs> oh, <laughs> they wow. were perfect. So I think for commercials, it's, it's they have a lot more knowledge about what's going on than I do. I have one part of the entire piece. Whereas for theater, I have all of it uh-huh. and I'm involved in all of it. Uh, you know, the commercial stuff, there's people I never meet. There's producers who are in L.A. or New York who are never in session, who I never have meetings with. So they're just telling me what the director wants. I'm trying to channel what I think they mean and give them what I think they want to see. And then they make decisions based on their research. Great.
0: Um, So in, in the theatrical case where you have, as you just said, sort of more of the whole picture, how is it then that you make decisions? Like how, what are the guiding principles as you cast? How do you, when do you know that someone is the best fit for a particular role?
2: That depends. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get ready for that answer all the time.
0: Uh, sometimes I have a really
2: strong feeling before auditions hmm. who I want for a certain part. And sometimes that's, that's a problem and I need to be able to, to let go of that. And that's hard for me sometimes. It's really hard for me sometimes. Um, I'm like, I know this is the right person. I know this person ticks all the boxes. But, you know, for theater, it's it's not just me. It's also, like, for example, if we're talking about Colorado Shakespeare Festival, aside from me, there's also, it's rep. So there's not just one director. There's two to four directors that people all have to fit within. And then there's an artistic director on top of that. So there's at least three to maybe five other people making this decision so I can make my recommendations of what I think is right um, but then they are the ones who are like well for my show I need this but for my show I need this but because of the rep demands one person has to fit all of those needs so so it's it's tricky but sometimes I go in I'm like I know this person's right for the role Just just hire them, that's boom. And sometimes it's, this person's right for the role, they come in to callbacks, and it's like, oh, yeah, no, that didn't, Mm. they didn't bring it, you know, that was disappointing, or they didn't get it, or... They couldn't take the adjustment or, you know, they didn't show that they were directable in the, in the callback, uh, at least for. And sometimes I just think people are intimidated because it's Shakespeare. And I don't necessarily there are actors in town who have a lot of Shakespeare experience, yeah. but there are a lot of really good actors in town who don't. Mm-hmm. And I think the really good actors come in and get a little intimidated because it's Shakespeare. Yeah. And I just want them to, you know, <laughs> not worry <laughs> about that so much. Just be a, you're, you're such a good actor. Um, so, and then sometimes people come in who I'm not expecting to do well and they just hit it out of the park. Yeah. You know?
0: And we talked a little bit about expectations from the performer's point of view, but there's also like a separate psychological literature on expectations and how sometimes expectations sort of boost, you know, if something is consistent with your expectations, it magnifies, right? Like how much you mm-hmm. like someone or mm-hmm. don't like someone. Mm-hmm. So, I actually did um, a study on impression formation a couple years ago that was actually about um, coming into an interaction with someone with a reputational prior. Mm -hmm. So like if you've heard something about them beforehand, but haven't experienced yourself and it, people are really reluctant to let go of this reputational prior. Like, they keep letting it influence them even when it's completely illogical to do so, right? Like, this was, like, an economic game where people kept screwing them over and screwing them over, but they had heard that 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 was, like, a nice, generous person. And so they're like, yeah, that, you know, like, it still influenced Uh their liking Uh and their, like, ratings of even, like, the generosity of that person even when it shouldn't have. But there's also this discrepancy effect, right? Where if you have high expectations and then people fall short, your brain is like, danger, danger. (laughs) And it actually can be like a, a big that sort of disappointment gap is also a big thing. So expectations can sometimes work in an actor's favor if you have high expectations, but sometimes can work. You know what I mean? Like yes. if they're close, it can give them a little boost and like, oh, you know, I, I have this background knowledge and and it's I think they can do it. But if they fall short, sometimes that can actually be even worse than if you hadn't had that expectation going in.
2: Right, and I I do think the flip side of that is is that there are actors who come in who. Who you know, you know, and who you've cast a lot and who you've worked with or the companies you're working with have worked with a lot. And I think sometimes actors who are really good and have a lot of experience get a little lazy. Mm. And they don't put in the work Mm. that someone who hasn't been cast there and really wants in does. And so then you get like the flip expectation, which is, you know, wow, that person didn't, wow, that was that's, I know they can do better. Than, and I often in notes will be like, this is not a good audition. They're better than this is often yeah. in my notes. Mm. Uh, and then people will come in who I'll be like, yeah, I don't know. And then I'm like, wow, they worked really hard. Yeah. They, really, they really brought it for that audition, which is a surprise, which is always kind of fun. This
1: is a question for, for both of you. Is it possible to... I'm fascinated in my own personal life about when an impression washes away and I form a new impression about mm. someone. I'm wondering if there's science about that. And I wonder if for you, Sylvia, um, if you, the, the, go, the pre-audition impression, does it ever get fully washed away by an excellent or really a subpar audition? For,
2: for me, I would say it goes in two different directions. So someone who I have a very strong impression of, who I know well and who I really like, comes in and does a bad audition. It's not a permanent shift for me. It's a, oh, wow, okay, well, that's surprising and they need to step it up next time, but it's not like I'm not going to call them in again. You know, right. Unless right. they do something like throw a chair at me or something like, you know, or they're high as a kite or something <laughs> like that. Yes, that's happening. Oh, I'm so sorry. Don't ever do that. Ever. <laughs> and, and I don't do it. Um, Practical
0: advice. <laughs> Practical don't advice. Throw don't throw chairs.
2: Uh, it just, it's not emotional and it's not cool. It's just scary. Oh, it was
0: like part of the audition? Yes. Oh, oh it was not good. Anyway. Uh,
2: so, so I would say that for someone wh- whom I think is, is a skilled actor, and they come in and have a bad audition, I'm not gonna be like, Well, I'm never seeing them again. Sure. Unless I do something drastic, you know. Otherwise it'll be like, okay, well, just that was a bad day. If it's someone who I've been like, I've seen them in shows, I you know, oh, they're they're really green or they're kind of weak, and they come in and they've done a lot of work and they know the material and they're able to listen and take direction, I'll be like, That was great. Mm. I will call them in again. Mm-hmm. So it's I don't know if there's really anything permanent unless I have a client who is definitely like, I don't want to see that person again. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then I just file away, okay, don't call that person in for that particular client. Yeah. But that doesn't mean I won't call them in for something else. Great.
0: That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. and And that's, I mean, you are probably more flexible than maybe people in general in that regard. I mean, there is definitely evidence that people update their impressions of people over time. Um, But there's a lot of evidence that first impressions stick around for for quite some time. And honestly, usually the biggest element in changing someone's impression, that the biggest update that you can make is one that comes with surprise, right? Is when you have in either direction a really big discrepancy between your expectation and how someone performs, that's when your impression gets most strongly and quickly updated
1: what are the traits you observe in actors that give a positive impression that leave you going, huh, from the second they walk into the door to the second they leave? Obviously one of them must be how well they tackle the material. And there's probably lots of ways to talk about that. But, but maybe what are the other ways for an actor to succeed in impressing you or leaving a positive imprint?
2: Uh, Professionalism is a big one for me. Uh, And, you know, I, when I teach a lot of times, it's, you, you have students of wildly different levels of skill and experience and training. You know, But in my audition classes, I'm like, if you can come in, no matter what your skill level is and no matter how you're connecting to the material, if you can walk in and leave as a professional and comport yourself throughout the audition as a professional – That's a huge part of it. If your resume looks professional and not like you did it at two in the morning, you know, if the columns line up. I mean, you know, there's some basic stuff. (laughs) Formatting is hard, Um, (laughs) but it's a it's to me it's actors who come in and act professionally. They don't come up to the table and and put their hands in our face to shake our hands. You know, they. Respect distance. They know where to go. They don't come in and say, you know, should I just start or should I say my name? No, you know what to do when you come in the room. Uh, The second part of that is I like actors who come into an audition, audition, especially a callback situation, as though they already have the part and they're Mm -hmm. there for a rehearsal. (laughs) Uh <laughs> ha, That excites me to hear. Yeah, yeah. I have
1: more questions about that. Okay. Yeah.
2: But that, that to me is also a huge part of it because it, it shows that you're a professional because you've been hired and you're there to rehearse, but you're also there to listen, you're there to play, you've brought your own work, your own ideas, but you're also willing to sort of set them aside or jettison them or compromise them based on what you're hearing from the other people in the room. That makes you, a lot of sense to me.
0: Do you also re- do you think you respond to that kind of... Confidence, like is, it, is that a piece of it, or is it more just the mindset of of being flexible
2: i think conf- sure confidence, yeah, confidence is attractive as long as it 's not arrogant, yeah, which that 's a fine line sometimes it can be yeah uh, so for me that 's why i don 't say confident, I say professional, yeah, because you can be nervous or shy or whatever, mm-hmm. and still behave professionally. You know how to walk in the room, you know how to start your audition, you know how to do your transitions, you know where your focus points are. You know,
0: and, and your focus point is not in Sylvia's your face. Your Focus
2: point is not my eyes. Thank you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Please don't look at me. I um, learned this from Facebook. Yeah, you did. Didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, makes me uh, crazy.
2: Um, some directors love that though, and some directors are like, "Use me, look at me," and then I'm like, "Yeah, use him, look at him, right, not right, me, right. him. He loves it." Uh, but no, it's, it's, so it's just it's just knowing how to behave in the room, which a lot of actors don't don't know how to behave in the room. Mm. Um, so if I see someone who comes in, I'm like, "Well, that wasn't the strongest audition," but you know, a lot of students come in, and I'll be like, okay, well, they're not ready yet. But that was a great professional audition.
0: Mm, That's yeah. a big deal to me. So we talked about how your impressions change over time. Um, how would you, how fast would you say, like, at the first time you're seeing someone, how fast do your impressions get formed? Like, typical audition pieces are how long, and, like, how long do you actually need, do you think, yeah. to, like...
2: Typical audition pieces are, usually they'll say you have three minutes to do two pieces. Mm-hmm. I always recommend a minute ten tops per piece, mm-hmm. because if you have three minutes, I mean, this is a little off, but, you know, you want to, you want the cushion for yourself in case you mess up, if they're laughing, whatever, if something happens, you know, you, you and you, you don't need three minutes, to, leave, leave us wanting more, as they say, mm-hmm. I'm doing jazz hands, <laughs> um, <laughs> I tell my students, and this is especially true if you're taping an audition, because we can turn off the tape. If we're in the room, we can check out, but we're still in the room. We're kind of hearing you buzzing about. Uh, So (laughs) I tell my students, you have 10 seconds to interest me for 10 more seconds. Wow. To interest me for 10 more seconds. To interest me for 10 more seconds.
1: Yeah, and that that ties into good acting, which is you want this continuous forward-moving momentum, that this moment connects to this moment, connects to this moment, connects to this moment. Right. So if I'm here now with you because what you're doing is engaging, I'll give you more time.
2: Right. And it's also you can tell, I mean, by someone's voice pretty quickly, is that voice going to work for the project or not? And sometimes the answer is no, and it's like, I don't need to watch anymore.
1: I asked you what uh, books you give students when you teach auditioning, and you listed two, and one I know very well. Uh, So first let me ask you about that one. Why do you use or like or love or employ actions, the actor's thesaurus, as much as you do? And why do you use it in an auditioning class?
2: Actions are the most important thing you can do in an audition. I mean, being professional, doing all the stuff, being prepared, yes, of course. But if you come into an audition and you're playing an attitude, if you're like, I'm mad, I'm sad, then I'm bored. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I want someone who needs something and is trying to get it. I want to see if you have a one, point, a one minute and 10 second monologue, I want to see three actions. Any more, and you're going to look psychotic. Oh. Any less, and you're going to look general and nonspecific. Mm. I need to see you needing something and trying to get it, and actions are the key to that. And for commercial copy, actions are gold. That actions book. If you or the app, it's it's an app too. If you're at a commercial audition and sometimes you get the copy, you know, that morning at the audition, the night before. Sometimes with commercial stuff, you don't get it till really super last minute. So it's hard to prep. Generally in a commercial, your action is going to be to sell. But how do you make that? Interesting, you know, so how do you, how do you change that up? Maybe you seduce, maybe you charm, maybe you bully like the ShamWow guy. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's, there's, there's different, so you can get that app or that book, look at your copy and go, oh, okay, yeah. I'm going to choose this action and use that. And boom, you've got your specificity in seconds. Yeah, mm. That's why I love actions. And if someone's coming in and they're not doing actions for me, I'm not interested. I'm not yeah. going to be like, oh, did you see that? Did you see what they just did? They needled her. I'm not going to know that. But I'm going to be like, that person really tried to get what they needed. Yeah. yeah. Is what I'm going to see.
0: Yeah. That's why. And
1: why, and you also listed Kathy Reinkin's book. So tell, tell us about that book. Kathy, as a casting director,
2: is a champion of actors. And Kathy wrote this book. Not to get her name out into the world more and not to make money, but to help actors. I feel it comes from a completely generous place of wanting to see actors be better. And Kathy is someone who is completely cutting edge as far as what's happening in the industry. She, she was in L.A. for a long time. You know, she was at NBC and then she was here for a while. And now she's out in Atlanta and based on she wrote this book when she was just out of L.A when she was here in town and in Denver and now she's in Atlanta and she's seeing all kinds of new things and so she has revised the book based mm-hmm. on that so it's not just that she wrote a book and it's calcified she is complete. she's revising it She's it's current it's what's happening now it talks about self-taping it talks about you know the scene in Atlanta it's a it's a very it's a very forward-thinking book with momentum I think
1: mm-hmm.
2: and I really really like it and mm-hmm. I think it's also very accessible for actors
1: yeah Awesome. I
2: love, I love what you said about champ, champion of actors. Oh, she totally is. She loves that. She's a she's like fangirls over all actors. Oh. Awesome. She Her loves action
0: them. as she writes the book. She's like, I'm championing the actors yeah. right yeah. now. Yeah, I'm advocating. She, she truly yeah.
2: is. So great.
0: Yep. That's awesome. But obviously, in an audition situation, actors are nervous in a way that they're not in rehearsal. And honestly, that sometimes they're not in performance. So, do you ever try to tease apart, like, this is how this audition would look without the nerves or this is how I think they'll be without that, that factor. Like, or do you ever try to separate out those things or do you just take it as they come in? And if they're nervous, you think that might be how they'll actually do it. And you wait until they're a little bit more advanced and can do the audition without the visible nerves. It depends. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: I would say uh, I want to talk. Can I talk about nerves a little bit? Yeah. I'll answer the question Please. first, but I think that we'll have actors come in and they'll read for us and it's obvious that they're nervous. And I'll make, I'll make a note that the client can see or the director or whoever can see saying she's nervous, uh, or he's nervous. I will try, if I know the actor enough to know that I will try to, I'll, I'll say, you know, and, and I'm typing as I'm saying, I make my notes cause we usually have like a Google spreadsheet or something open where we can see each other's comments. Mm. So if you think we're not paying attention to you, it's probably, we're actually probably talking about you.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, that doesn't <laughs>
2: They were all on their computers all the time. Yeah. We're talking about you. Uh, But I will say, you know, especially if there are directors in the room, I'll say, do you mind if I give this actor an adjustment? Mm. Because I don't want to step on their toes because sometimes they'll be like, no, I don't need to. You know, I'm good. But if I can, like sometimes it'll just be like, grab that chair, sit down, just talk to us. Just, you know, or just pretend you're a fallen priest and get rid of all that other stuff and just really think about, you know. So I'll try to give something specific to get them out of their head and to just help them focus more on what they're doing. Uh, I'm trying to think if it ever affects actually casting someone or considering someone. I think if we were to see them again and they still had the same thing, Mm -hmm. I think it would be like, yeah, we can't. At this point, we can't do it. I always encourage people when they say to themselves, oh, I'm so nervous, if it's possible to translate that in your mind to, I'm so excited.
0: (laughs) That's a reappraisal.
2: Yeah, Yeah, it's (laughs) the same energy. It's the same feeling. It's just making it more positive for yourself uh, rather than a negative, it becomes a positive. Oh, I'm excited to get to go in and do this, and oh, my stomach's all flutter. Yeah, Yeah, Trying to think about that. And the other thing I like to tell actors as a trick is I have this beautiful necklace that my husband gave me. It's abalone and silver, and it's from Hawaii, and it's like teeth, it's like a collar necklace, and Mm. each abalone shell is maybe an inch and a half long, in silver, and they're all connected together. And it's a beautiful piece of jewelry. But if I'm going to go meet with a client that's intimidating or if I'm pitching for, like, a national commercial, I'll wear it because it looks professional. But in my mind, it's my armor, Yeah. and it's my power, and it's my strength, mm. and I feel protected in it. So if there's anything that you have that you can wear as an actor oh. that gives you, and we won't know, you know, yeah. but if you can take strength from it or power yeah. or some form of control in your mind that's always a useful thing to have.
1: My impression, Sylvia, is in a, a theater audition, one wants to worry less about costuming themselves and more about looking professional, like a job interview. Right? Um, and that maybe with a camera audition, because the literal look of you is more important, you can push a little more into the costuming of that character. Is that correct? Yes, I would always say, well, for it,
2: again, it depends. Uh, uh, for commercial stuff or roles on camera, uh, yes, you want a dress to suggest the character, but mm-hmm. I wouldn't go out and rent a full costume. Yeah, you know, uh, oftentimes if, if we're auditioning for a doctor, we'll have a I'll borrow a lab coat from a friend who's a Great. doctor or a stethoscope or something, and that, have everyone put that on. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> we try to sort of keep. Keep the props slash costumes for on camera stuff consistent, so that the client doesn't get tricked by they had the best glasses. Let's hire right. them. So it's everyone <laughs> has the same glasses. So let's look at who's best for the part. Right, right. Um, and for general theater auditions, just job interview, just basic. I always say, you know, dark pants or a skirt, a new uh, one, solid colored. Not black or white top, because you never know the background you're going to be up against. Some pop of color is nice. Shoes that aren't too loud on the floor. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then if you're called back for uh, one role in a play, yes, again, dress to suggest that role. If you're, if you're doing Annapurna and you're a guy who lives in a trailer park, you want to dress like that guy. You're not going to come in, in a three-piece suit, you know. Right. But if you're auditioning for rep casting where you're auditioning for three to six different roles,
1: sometimes more, stay neutral. Stay neutral, sure. <clears throat> Uh, another question. What are the biggest mistakes you see actors make oh. in auditions?
2: <coughs> Throwing chairs. Throwing chairs is one <laughs> of them. Oh, I could give you a ton of examples, but they aren't like general examples. They're, you know,
1: <laughs> they're,
2: they're <so> bizarre. <laughs> specific- Specificity is <laughs> good. <laughs> oh, God. Well, I like to think of the audition room as a neutral space, as a safe space, so I probably won't tell stories. But uh, I think that the, really the main. Mistakes that I see made are actors who aren't prepared um, and actors who aren't specific. So actors who, like a lot of times we'll we'll look at their sides and we'll be like, oh, I wish they were better prepared. You know, they've had this for two weeks. Mm -hmm. I wish they knew this better. Uh, I wish their eyes were up off the page more. Or I wish they weren't just playing Vengeance. You know, I mm-hmm, wish there mm-hmm, was. I mm-hmm. wish they were really trying to get something. Mm-hmm. So I would say, for me, it's preparation and specificity are the two sort of main issues. Mm-hmm. You know, and then there's be- behavior in the room. Don't be a dick. Mm-hmm. Um, these can I say? All, can I say
1: dick?
0: Sure. Okay. Yeah, you
1: can swear worse than that. <laughs> okay. These great. are
0: all things that was awesome about this is these are all things that people can change. Like these aren't. Right. You know. Right. Yeah.
2: Um, I've seen people lose roles because they were unprepared. I've seen people come in as a formality wow. who we in our minds have already made up our mind that that person's going to be the person and then in the process of their audition lose the role oh, no. because they are not prepared. The other thing is who are you bringing into the room that we're going to want to work with, you know, because we're mm. going to be with you for at least 10 hours on set for one day or eight. 18 weeks or however long the contract is. So we need to see someone who comes in the room who's going to be warm and competent and someone that we are going to enjoy being around. Yeah.
0: So I took an audition class with you many, many moons ago and I remember you saying that you wish more actors were aware of their type Uh, that a lot of actors have either they desire to be a different type mm -hmm. (laughs) or that, that that is like one of the things that you sort of see. Can you say a little bit more about type and, and how, how, Actors can use that as as a as a tool.
2: Yeah, I, I think so. I I'm going to use myself as, as an example to answer this question. When I was acting 180 years ago, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I believed and had been told through my training that I was a leading lady, and that was as in grad school in you know all the stuff I was often cast as the leading lady. Right, so I get to New York City, and deep frustration that I'm not getting cast as leading ladies, and it it took an unfortunate uh, event at a at my job, which was checking coats, for me to realize that I was not perceived as a leading lady by the general population, Mm. but that I was more of a character, best friend. I feel you. You know, (laughs) and if I'd known that years before. I could have made other decisions. You know, I could have been going out for... I was always going out for the wrong parts. You know, I could have targeted different roles. Maybe I would have made different life choices (laughs) about my career. Uh, You know? (laughs) Um, I just feel like I didn't understand my own type until by the time I understood it, I was pretty much done mm -hmm. with acting. So when I talk about type, it's not like... You are Roseanne Barr and you're always only going to be Roseanne Barr. That's not Mm -hmm. what I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, and hopefully that's not true for any of us. Um, But if you can understand how you are perceived, it's going to make things easier for you. It's going to help you. Uh, And sometimes you'll go in for castings and you'll be like, I'm totally wrong for this. And you'll still book it because you were Mm -hmm. the best one that read for it. Mm -hmm. So you just can't know. But understanding your type... I think just makes your life as an actor easier. It doesn't mean you are your type. It doesn't mean that's all you can do. But probably seven out of ten times, that's who you're going to get called in for. And if you can embrace that and be honest with yourself about it and be like, okay, my type isn't who I wish it was, but this is who I am.
0: So
1: that's what I'm going to go for. I think it just will make you happier as an actor. Yeah. I have kind of a dumb question. How does one honestly find out their type. Do yeah. they ask their friends what um, how they would type them in a TV show? Do they I think it seems obvious, but it it, it isn't. No, it's to very actors. It's, I think it's hard to understand your type.
2: Yeah, it's very hard. And I found out through something super insulting that happened. You know, right. so it was like a, it was literally like a slap in the face that was like, "Oh, there goes 15 years of my life." But I think it's I think things you can do are first of all, look at the roles you're being called in for. Look at what you're... If you're doing a general audition, let's say for Colorado Shakespeare Festival, as an example, look at the roles you're getting called back for. What type of character... Is it consistently... Are you consistently called back for the comedic sidekick? Are you consistently called back for the ingenue? Are you consistently called back for the badass? You know, that, that's one way to look at it. Commercials. Are you consistently called back for the young mom? Are you consistently called back for the hot chick in the bar? So you can... You, if you're getting... Callbacks, if you're getting that far and you're getting in the room, how are you getting in the room? The other thing you can do is, who do people say they remind you of? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, you remind me of Joan Cusack. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. You remind me of Phyllis Diller. Mm
1: -hmm. Oh, okay. Useful. (laughs) Great. Oh, that's helpful. You remind me of
2: Brad
0: Pitt. Awesome. You know. So yeah. I, think, I think you I've can. I've always thought you remind me of Brad Pitt. <laughs> okay, it's the
2: pecs. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I think, I think you can look at that. And then, yes, you could just say to people who, I, I'm always leery of people you know well because your personality is going to, they know you well. So it's going to inform that. But people who you like and have a good acquaintance with but aren't necessarily super close, you'd be like, who, who do I remind you of? Yeah. You know, if you trust them enough to ask them that question. Great. Thank it's hard. You. Typing is hard. It's hard. What do you love about your job? Oh, my goodness. I, I think my favorite part of the job is working with the actors. Mm. I think I love being in the room with them and giving them adjustments. Um, I love watching what they can do or if they're in a place where they're feeling stuck, helping them get to a place where they can show what they can do. Mm. Uh, I love the opportunity to give local actors jobs. That's one of my favorite things. The flip side of that is it's really hard when we when I can't. You know, right. uh, I, I love the collaboration aspect of it. Usually, uh, I I love the community feeling of it most of the time.
0: Yeah, yeah. Mm.
1: Thank you. You're welcome.
0: It's been so awesome to talk with Thank you. you. Thanks. Thank we you have lots guys. more questions, but we'll save those for drinks. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that sounds good. Thank <laughs> you,
1: Sylvia. Thank you, both. That
2: was fun. Bye. Yeah.
1: And that's our episode. Thanks so much for listening. If you liked what you heard, please spread the word.
0: As always, we have resources up on our website, www.theactorsmind.com. If you are like, what was the book? What was the article? That's where you can go and get a reference. We also uh, do a, just a little bit of social mediaing. So if you want to follow us, we're at Actors Mind Pod on Facebook and Twitter and the Instagram. Bye. Bye. <laughs>